Please turn in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 6. We will be looking at verses 1 through 8. And I was drawn to thinking through this passage again because uh, earlier in the week I was... uh, I still wasn't feeling very well. I had a pretty sore throat. This was on Thursday, and I was talking to, to Bill about um, how I might have overdone it by speaking to the youth for 45 minutes on Wednesday night. And he told me, kind of jokingly, uh, that if I didn't feel well, I could have had a really effective message by just going up, standing in front of the youth, staring them down for a little bit, and just maybe repeating a couple of times, fear God. (laughs) But that sentiment that Bill expressed is true. Um, It is true. The biggest problem within all of humanity is a lack of fear and reverence toward God. And this is due to the fact that the people in general, and even Christians do not think and reflect enough on the holiness of God. When we're talking about holiness, what we we mean is the the otherness of God. The word means to be be set apart from. The idea is that God is so different. He is so set apart from us. He is so much higher and greater than us or even than anything that we can possibly imagine. In fact, it is impossible for us to fully comprehend who God is. The depths of our language, the depths of our imaginations come up woefully inadequate because for us, in our finite minds, to comprehend the greatness of of something, we need to be able to compare it to something else. And, And all that we have to compare Him to are the great things that we see around us that He has created. So the the holiness of God extends infinitely beyond all of those things. So when we talk about rightly understanding the holiness of God so that we can rightly fear Him as we should, what we are really going for is the understanding that this is not something that we can ever fully grasp. You will not be ever to the point in your Christian walk where you're like, I've got the holiness of God down. What's the next thing? That's not going to happen. Um, we, We can't fully grasp it. The best that we can do really is just to continue to expand in our minds the gulf between who God is and, and anything else we can think of, knowing full well that our finite minds can never fully comprehend the infinite length of that gulf. Not rightly thinking through the holiness of God is at the root of all of our sin. Because if, if in the moment that you choose to sin, if you were in that moment rightly thinking about the holiness of God, you would not do it. In fact, you would be terrified that the thought even entered your mind. It's not just that consistently having a right understanding of the holiness of the Lord or a proper fear of God. It's not just that that would cause us to sin much less frequently, but but it would have a profound effect on everything we do. What, what type of entertainment decisions would you make if you were moment by moment contemplating, meditating on the holiness of God? What would you do with the internet? What would you do with social media? 
How would you spend your time with your family if you're moment by moment contemplating, meditating on the holiness of God? How much, how much hope or concern would you invest into who gets elected to run the country? How much would the, the daily news cycle actually affect your life? Even things like reading your Bible and praying. How does your understanding of the holiness of God affect the way you think as you open your Bible to follow the daily Bible reading plan? Or your praying? Or your decisions about sharing Christ with a neighbor or co-worker? Or about confronting your brother or sister in Christ with a sin that you see in their life? Or how does the holiness of God affect then your attitude when someone confronts you with sin that they see in your life. In fact, all of those things. This is why one of the best things that we can do that will improve how we think about God and how we live day to day is to spend time meditating on God's holiness. So here in January, as we begin a new year, I thought it would be a good idea to spend this morning thinking through these things together by looking at Uh, what is most likely a familiar passage uh, for most of you. I want us to see here today how consistent, clear thinking about God's holiness will completely change the way you live your life like nothing else can. The more you are thinking about His holiness, the more fervently you will serve Him. And to that end, I have three points for this sermon. They each have to do with God's holiness in relation to something. So at the top of your notes, you could write something like the holiness of God in relation to, and then colon, and then for the points we have, number one, all earthly powers, number two, the heavenly host, number three, you. So the holiness of God in relation to all earthly powers, the holiness of God in relation to the heavenly host, and the holiness of God in relation to you. So with that, let's read these eight verses together. And even though I know they're familiar to many of us, try to read them, try to hear them with the sense that Isaiah would be trying to communicate this message, like a, like a brother coming up to you and sharing the most amazing thing that has ever happened to them. Listen like that. Isaiah 6, verses 1-8. through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim, Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is Me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of the of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. 
Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and whom will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. So as we read that passage, we notice that the very first verse calls us to understand a context. So if we are really going to understand what's going on here, we need to understand that phrase, in the year that King Uzziah died. So who is King Uzziah? If we're going to understand the weight of this passage in relation to our first point, we need to know who King Uzziah is and know why His death is so significant. So as we begin to look at point one, the holiness of God in relation to all earthly powers, it is going to come out of a right understanding of of that phrase. So we need to know how to answer those questions about who Uzziah is. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Chronicles 26, 1 through 15. In this passage, we find a really good description of what the kingdom of Judah looked like under the leadership of King Uzziah. And as we read it, remember that it, is, it has now been over 150 years since the kingdom of Israel has split. It's split under Solomon into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. And in the northern kingdom in Israel, we have seen a succession throughout, if you've been reading First and Second Chronicles, you've seen a succession of bad kings in Israel. And in Judah, there's kind of been a mix of good and bad kings. So think of this description of the king of Judah that we're about to read. And imagine how those living in Judah most likely thought of having a king like this. Second Chronicles 26, And all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father Amaziah. He built Eloth and restored it to Judah after the king had slept with his fathers. Uzziah was 16 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. He went out and made war against the Philistines and broke through the wall of Gath and the wall of Jabna and the wall of Ashdod. And he built cities in the territory of Ashdod and elsewhere among the Philistines. God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabians who lived in Gurbaal and against the Munites. And the Ammonites paid tribute to Uzziah, and his fame spread even to the border of Egypt, for he became very strong. Moreover, Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate and at the valley gate and at the angle and fortified them. And he built towers in the wilderness and cut out many cisterns, for he had large herds both in Shephelah and in the plain, and he had farmers and vine dressers in the hills and in the fertile lands, for he loved the soil. Moreover, Uzziah had an army of soldiers fit for war, 
in divisions according to the numbers in the muster made by Jael, the secretary, and Maaseah, the officer under the direction of Hananiah, one of the king's commanders. The whole number of the heads of fathers' houses of mighty men of valor was 2,600. Under their command was an army of 307,500 who could make war with mighty power to help the king against the enemy. And Uzziah prepared for all the army shields, spears, helmets, coats of mail, bows, and stones for slinging. In Jerusalem, he made machines invented by skillful men to be on the towers and the corners to shoot arrows and great stones. And his fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. So Uzziah is a significant king for the nation of Judah. Neither Israel or Judah has had a king like Uzziah. Um, who has helped Judah to thrive like it currently is all the way since Solomon, who reigned, again, about 150 years before Uzziah. He is accomplishing everything that you would want your king to accomplish on your behalf if you lived in this time. He is making the nation famous and formidable among all nations. He was strong and Judah was strong and all of the nations around knew this. The economy is thriving. You see that he has all of these great building projects going on, that there's more and more farms, that more and more food is being produced, and he's building new cisterns. So food and water are plentiful in the nation, which is a, a big concern for nations during that time. And during this time in world history, another big concern and something that would have brought comfort to the people uh, when considering their king, was, was having a powerful army. And that is exactly what we see here. He had an army of soldiers fit for war, it says. 2,600 mighty men of valor leading an army of 307,500 who it says could make war with mighty power. That, that would make them, that would make Judah's army here, if it was around today, as far as troop size, the 15th or 16th largest army in the world today. And not only did he have the men he needed in his army, but he had the supplies he needed. It even says that they were inventing new machines, new weapons for warfare, these, these catapult-like machines that could shoot groups of arrows and large stones. So, so there, Judah is one of those countries that other countries are observing and trying to catch up to. And then what's even better than any of that is what you see when you look at verses 4 and 5 and what's referenced in verse 15. He was a king who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He set himself up to seek God. He heeded the instruction of Zechariah. Not the prophet Zechariah, but Zechariah who was a spiritual advisor to him. He, got, he humbled himself to receive instruction from him. And he was instructed, it says, in the fear of God. And it says that God makes him prosper. He was marvelously helped, it says. So how, how amazing that would be, right? To be able to say that about our leader, about a leader, that, that he, is, he sets himself up to seek God. He fears the Lord. And, and one of the most amazing things that you see in this passage is that he reigned for 52 years. 
52 years. Now, that does count some time at the beginning of his reign and at the end of his reign uh, where he reigned with his father for a little bit. There's a co-regency and a little bit of a co-regency with his son at the end of his life. But think about what's going on here, that in some way or another, the people of Judah have known Uzziah as their king for 52 years. That means that there isn't a person alive in Judah who hasn't known of anything but having Uzziah and the prosperity that comes with that as their king for most of their life. And in fact, most of them have no recollection of anyone but Uzziah as their king for their entire life. So just think about that in comparison to us. We have a president for four or eight years. And right now, even in this, there isn't a person in our building today over the age of three who hasn't already lived under at least two presidents. And even if our president isn't good, we have other parts of the government that we can hope in, and we can always hope for the best at the next election. We don't really have the ability to completely understand what the people of Judah must be thinking in the year that King Uzziah died. We are so used to change and turnover and at least a small amount of instability in our country. But these people have no understanding of their national identity apart from King Uzziah. They know the special heritage as a country that they have been given as, a, as the people of God. But they have actually never really experienced that and probably don't even understand what that means apart from the kingship of King Uzziah. They don't know what it means to be the people of God other than under the kingship of Uzziah. The two have always been connected for them in their lives. As concerned as many of us get when it comes to politics and the amount of worry that we feel over who gets into office or who doesn't get into office, we have never experienced the type of change and uncertainty and possible hopelessness that these people would be going through. What if, what if the next king is... 52 years of someone who has the character of Ahab? What if, what if the next king doesn't seek the Lord at all and so God judges them and allows them to be conquered or enslaved by another country as they see going on all around them? Maybe the country might not even have another 52 years. This would be a constant point of concern for these people at this time of history. And we need to understand this is a stressful, a scary time of uncertainty in the transition. No one has faced a time like this in Judah in half a century, and most have never faced anything like it at all. The future is uncertain. We know that the Assyrians during this time are growing in power. Plus, there's probably now, at the end of Uzziah's life, good concern that God may have already left them because of how this good king's life ended. If you looked ahead in verses 16 through 23 of chapter 26, you see that Uzziah stops fearing God after he grows strong. It says, but when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah the priest went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor, and they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, 
to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. Then Uzziah was angry. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense, and when he became angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead. In the presence of the priests in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense, and Azariah the chief priest and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous in his forehead, and they rushed him out quickly, and he himself hurried to go out because the Lord had struck him. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death. And being in a leper, and being a leper lived in a separate house, for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. This is how his kingdom, his kingship ends. So there's probably a pretty big fear that the nation isn't heading in the right direction already. And God might be judging them now. Now, turn back to Isaiah 6. So, so you can imagine the type of concern and confusion running through the nation of Judah. This is an unprecedented time. All kinds of fearful conversations around every table and running throughout the country probably going on. And in the middle of all of this confusion and all of the uncertainty that floods over, it floods over any nation when, when they are in a period of transition or when there is concern over the direction that new leadership might take a country. And even in this situation, which is unlike anything that we have experienced as far as the changing of leadership, and all of this, where is God? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. In the midst of this, where is God? He is sitting on his throne. The earthly king, the ruler of the nation of Judah, for almost half of a century is dead. He is gone. But the king of kings, the the eternal king, the real ruler of Judah and, of, and the ruler over every nation and over the entire universe, the one, the, one who, the one to whom 52 years is as nothing, that king sits on his throne. King of Judah is dead, the king of the universe is alive and in the same position of authority that he has always held. While every leader of every country throughout all of history has lived and died, God has been on his throne. The same place that he will be hundreds of years from now. As every world power in existence today rises and crumbles into nothing but pages in a history book, God remains on His throne. And notice, He's, he's sitting on His throne. He's not panicked by a change in circumstances. He's not frantically pacing around, desperately you know, trying to find royal advisors to, to, to figure out what to do about the crisis of King Uzziah's death. Now, the Lord of hosts sits unfazed, watching and bringing to pass all the events that we find 
so many times completely devastating or that might cause us to sink into hopelessness and despair. Every single one of these things that cause us, that can cause us so much fear, so much anguish, cause us to lose sleep, that cause us to worry, the, the trials that we just can't see beyond. These are all the things that God is bringing to pass for His good and wise purposes. We understand this better as we see Isaiah describe the throne as one that is high and lifted up. The picture is a, is a throne that is above every other throne. The sovereign ruler over every other throne and, and every man that sits on a throne, this God, this ruler, is set apart from and rules over every other ruler, every other power, both now and forever and throughout all of history. So we might be disgusted by and maybe not understand the purpose of every piece of legislation that's signed by a president or every decision made by the Supreme Court or the results of, of an election or even on a worldwide scale, the, the rise of every evil dictator around the world. We might be disgusted by those and not understand them, but our God reigns over and above all of those things. Every decision made by every president, made by every Islamic government, made by every communist government, even every decision made in secret by terrorist leaders. None of the people making those decisions reign, really. None of those thing, none of those people actually carry any type of ultimate authority. The throne of our God is above every perceived power in the world. It's above Iran, it's above North Korea above the Democratic Party, above the Republican Party. No one in those places rule. None of them reign. Only our God reigns. His throne is high and lifted up above any perceived power that, that any of them have. And none of them, not one of those so-called rulers, even takes another breath unless the one sitting on this throne deems it to be so. This is how set apart our God is from every other power, every other ruler. Not even the most wise ruler who has ever lived could be trusted to govern and ordain even every moment of every breath of just some animal's life and then bring it to the exact end where it fits perfectly into the perfect tapestry that is God's good and wise plan for all of history. The wisest man in all of human history could not be trusted to do that. Yet, from God's high and lifted up throne, the Lord God directs every life 
every molecule in existence throughout all of history, and He guides it into the exact place that He has planned for it, down the exact path that He has ordained. This is the authority that is exercised by the One who has the train of His robe fill the temple. The word there that's translated as train, and you can probably see it in in your note uh, at the bottom of your page in your Bible, is actually in reference to just the hem or, or the very edge of his robe. This is Isaiah once again pointing out the holiness of God as all that he can do when it comes to describing God, that the best that he can hope for is to be able to describe the very edge of his robe. It's as though there is no way to try and depict God Himself. This is all that Isaiah can do is is depict the hem of this robe. If you're familiar with with your Bibles and and you actually see something similar to this in Exodus 24, actually turn back to Exodus 24 uh, and look at verses 9 and 10. In, In that passage where the covenant between God and Israel is being confirmed, we read this in verses 9 and 10. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. Now, what's the description of God that comes after that? There isn't one. Right? That's the end of the description. The best description of God by those who see Him is of what is under His feet. That, that's all the further they can go. God is so holy, so set apart, that all Isaiah can do is describe the smallest piece of His robe. Temples, if you know what a temple is, temples were built as dwelling places for gods throughout ancient history. That's supposed to be the purpose of the temple, a dwelling place for God. And we know from from some of the amazing instructions about the care for building the temple of the Lord and dedicating it, that if we were to go back to the beginning of 2 Chronicles in chapters 2 through 6, and then you were to see God's response from heaven in chapter 7, you would see and understand that the temple of the Lord is extremely important in the worship of the Israelites. But here we see that even though so much time and concern goes into the building of the temple back in 2 Chronicles 2 through 6, so much concern goes into it. God is so great, so glorious, so holy that the entire temple that was built for Him can barely contain the very edge of His robe. The idea is that even in the most majestic of possible earthly dwellings, even in something that is made by human hands to the exact specifications of God Himself, the best that humans can possibly do could never possibly contain the glory of God in all of His holiness. And it can't even contain the hem of His robe. So, 
in the midst of all of the turmoil swirling about Judah, all of the fear surrounding these people because of the uncertainty of what is coming, the concern of, of who the next leader they might have, who that might be, because of the concern that they have because of the, the false hope that comes as they have looked at Uzziah and with earthly thinking, the type of earthly thinking that we use so often. They see a human king, a human ruler, as somehow having some sort of responsibility when it comes to whether or not good or bad will befall them. In the midst of all the panic, all the confusion, Isaiah is not given any type of direct answer to any of the concerned questions that might be present in his mind. He is not comforted by some of, the, some of the corny, false spiritual hope that we tend to give each other, right? Like, you just got to have faith that things are going to be better. Or, or when God closes a door, He opens a window, right? And nothing like that. Isaiah hears nothing like that. Isaiah is not given an answer to any of the questions that he might have going in his mind. He is given instead a tiny glimpse at the holiness of God. And that is sufficient to answer, to clear up any concern or worry that might be going through his head at that moment about anything. A glimpse of God's absolute authority, His power, His glory, His holiness. Again, the holiness of God is impossible to communicate accurately among finite human beings because we're relegated to communicating with human language, a human language that has limits. So to, to reiterate again, the best thing that we can do when it comes to understanding God's holiness is, is just to expand in our mind the gulf between who God is and whatever the highest of all other creation is. Just keep seeing that expand and grow and get larger. We can expand that gulf in our finite minds as we study passages like this, but we will never be able to see the end of that gulf. That's what we see here as we look at this second point, the holiness of God in relation to the heavenly host. So turn back, turn back to Isaiah 6 if you haven't yet. Look at verses 2 through 4. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Even though some think that the four living creatures mentioned in Revelation 4 might be seraphim because of the similar function, and they could be. This is actually the only place in the entire Bible where the name seraphim is given. The word literally means the, the fiery ones or the burning ones. Notice that when it comes to the description of God, the best that Isaiah can do is to describe the immensity of the edge of God's robe. But even though these seraphim are like nothing that we have ever seen or could really imagine, he's still able to describe them. 
But, but in that, though, we still need to be careful because it is easy for us to just read something like this and then automatically put a picture of something like the angel that goes on top of a Christmas tree in our head. You need to get those representations of an angel out of your head and out of your house, by the way. Um, angels, angels are not men that look like women with dresses and wings. They, they don't look like little fat babies with harps. They don't look like those big-eyed precious moment figures. And that's not what you get when you see a description of any type of angelic being in the Bible. And these seraphim, these members of the heavenly host, these are creatures unlike anything that we have ever seen or experienced. These are fearsome, angelic beings of fire with six wings and voices that cause the ground to shake in the temple and to be filled with smoke. The other night I was here uh, working and, uh, and my wife called because she was hearing these loud noises uh, outside of our house that sounded like, like she, she described it as like a dump truck outside the house and she could feel kind of the concussion from the sounds inside the house. And as I was talking to her, I realized that even here at the church office, I was feeling the same thing and I could hear it too. And, and I went outside and we, we, and we came to find out later that what we were both hearing and feeling, uh, even though we live, uh, our house is a couple miles away from the church building, we were hearing them shooting off fireworks at the Budweiser Event Center, which is many miles from us. So I don't know if you've ever been really close to a firework going off, but, but I think most of us are kind of familiar with that sound, that sound that's so loud that you can feel it. Right? You can feel the sound. That's kind of maybe the best thing we can do here as we try to understand what Isaiah is hearing from these living creatures. It's like fireworks going off in this room with us. Being trapped in a room as massive fireworks are going off. The sound that shakes the foundations of the building. And this is the sound of the seraphim's voices of their natural voices, un unamplified by sound equipment. So Isaiah is seeing these seraphim. He is having this experience as these deafening creatures call out to each other. And all the while, his vision is being flooded with smoke. So as best as you can, we need, we need to try and put ourselves there and imagine that you are the one who is seeing and hearing these creatures. Because by definition, as we would compare them to every other thing and every other experience that we have ever had, these would be holy beings. This would be a holy experience. Just to be in those things' presence. It's sacred. It's set apart. It's anything like uh, it's unlike anything you've ever seen or experienced. They're completely set apart from every other thing that you have seen in your life and every other experience that you have ever had. If you were actually to ever see a member of the seraphim, it would change the way that you viewed the rest of your life. That would be a benchmark moment in your life. From then on, you would refer to everything that ever happened to you in terms of that which happened before that day and that which happened after that day. 
Just seeing one of these creatures would have changed the way you live. The way you thought about what was important and what's not. It would be extremely hard to ever get really excited about at, at a sporting event or to be impressed with someone else's story of some amazing thing that they experienced. That is the type of experience you would have just by coming into contact with one of these things. And yet, their whole purpose for existing is to declare the infinitely superior holiness of the one who sits upon the throne. That, that is why they exist. And you look again at verse 3, what are they crying out? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. They're crying out what we call the, the trihagion, the declaration of holy three times, indicating that this is how we are to think about God. The primary way in which we process Him. Holy, holy, holy. A phrase that is, is the best that can be done in human language to describe just how far apart God is from every other living thing in all of His creation. This is... This is grasping at language to describe God. The best word that we can use, repeated. The announcement to Isaiah, this announcement to Isaiah is to signal the fact that he is in the presence of one who is absolutely distinct from everyone and everything. There is nothing that can be compared to him. He is completely other than a human being, than, than Isaiah and this is the essence of God's character, one who is completely pure, completely upright, absolute truth, righteousness. Everything in all of creation is merely a reflection of Him and therefore is not something that He can be measured by. He is other. He is holy. When you look at the description of the seraphim, right? they have six wings. They have two to cover their faces because not even they are worthy to gaze upon the one who is on the throne. They have two to cover their feet, demonstrating their lowliness before Him. The fact that the, the part of them that would walk on the ground is not worthy of being displayed before the Creator. With two they fly, which allows them to stay in a constant state of service to the king on the throne. It has been said that they are all wings and voices, perfectly ready at all times for praise and service. Look at the lowliness. Look at how these, the lowliness of these seraphim before the Lord of hosts. The humility of those whom, again, any one of us, would consider the most amazing thing that we had ever seen in our entire life. And when you look at their demeanor before the thrice holy God and then recognize that these are sinless beings, right? they, they have not rebelled. They have not fallen. And this is their posture before the King of Kings. When you think of how they are before God, and then think through the audacity with which so many fallen humans dare to speak about God. 
or the way that we sometimes would flippantly read his word. There's something wrong with us if we don't see this picture and get shivers. Thinking about how we pray, how we read our Bibles, what goes on in, in, in our moment-to-moment decision-making process in light of who God is. Are we aware of the fact that this description of God is, is, is this holy, that even in our best, even in, even in the most clear moment in your thinking about God in your entire life, so the greatest you know, spiritual high that you've ever had in your life, Think about that time. When was that time you had the most amazing experience with your understanding of God where you heard something from Scripture, maybe in a sermon or in a devotion, and you understood it like you've never understood it before, where you get like, you know, goosebumps and you're so excited. Maybe you even begin to shed tears at the revelation and you spontaneously break out into song. So I pray you've had moments like that. But even in that moment, when you had the clearest and best understanding of who God is, even in that moment, it is only through the extremely kind grace of God and as a Christian through the intercession of the blood of Christ that you are not struck dead for your failure to revere and worship God as He deserves. That's what Isaiah is understanding right here. That's what we see in his response, which leads us into our last point, the holiness of God in relation to you. Look at his response in verses 5 through 8. So Isaiah sees this, has this experience. And I said, Isaiah said, woe is me. For I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah didn't come into this experience asking any questions about who he is. This hasn't been about him at all. God has not said anything about who Isaiah is. Yet, What R.C. Sproul said about this passage is absolutely true. When Isaiah saw God for the first time, Isaiah saw Isaiah for the first time. In this moment, Isaiah is not tempted for a second to compare himself to someone else in Judah. Even though if you were going to rank people alive at that time in terms of their godliness, Isaiah would certainly be at the top of the list. Throughout his life, Isaiah is literally going to give everything in service to God. Isaiah, after all, is the one above all others that God has found the favor in to share this experience with. And yet, he is completely unwilling Isaiah the prophet is completely unwilling to place himself in any other category other than that of the most vile of sinners. Before a holy God, there are no rankings. There is no point looking at some awful murdering adulterer and saying, well, at least I'm not that guy when you're standing in the presence of this king. 
That's where the the whole stupid works-based thinking when it comes to our salvation that's in every other religion is absurd before this picture of God. If we all went outside and we had a contest to see who could throw a football or something the farthest, you know, some would throw it farther than others. But if the point was throw the football and hit Neptune or be incinerated, no one is boasting about how far they threw the ball that day. Who cares how far you threw it? In the presence of the holiness of God, no one needs to point it out to Isaiah. No one needs to point out to Isaiah his utter sinfulness and deserved punishment. It sticks out like black paint on a pure white wall. The entirety of humanity has become so used to the fact that they do nothing but live every second of every day of their life experiencing the unfathomable grace of God. They become so used to that. They're callous to it. As every moment of their life, He mercifully doesn't wipe them out with every ungrateful breath that they take, with every second that goes by as they continually think thoughts that are unworthy of Him. They've gotten so used to the grace and mercy of God that any time they receive anything that that even takes the smallest step towards what they really deserve, they cry, unfair, and they start complaining about what they don't have. They have the audacity to complain about their life. That's why the culture in general mocks the few parts in the Bible where God actually shows us what fairness looks like for a moment. They point to those and say, that can't be God. They're so used to taking the grace of God for granted every second of their life that they're scandalized when they see God wiping out so many in the flood or when God kills Nadab and Abihu for offering strange fire in Leviticus 10 or when He kills Uzzah in in 2 Samuel 6 for just touching the Ark of the Covenant to try and keep it from touching the ground. Or when He has the man in Numbers 15, 32-36 put to death for violating just... He just violated the little command of work on the Sabbath. He's just picking up some sticks. Put to death. Or when He kills Ananias and Sapphira for giving a large gift to the church but lying about it. God could just do this to every person on the earth in virtually every moment of their lives. He could do this and and He would be good and He would be just to do it. Every moment He could do that. And Isaiah is recognizing all of this in this moment. That's what he's seeing. That's what he's understanding. And we need to desperately try And ask God to help us to have this understanding of ourselves as well because it is living in this recognition of the holiness of God in relation to ourselves that the provision that God has made for us becomes so precious. We see that provision for Isaiah in verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me 
having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. So Isaiah, with this fresh, as clear as can be in this life, recognition of just how sinful, how dirty, how unworthy he is before the holy God of the universe. That he has no business even being in the presence of seraphim, let alone the Lord of hosts on the throne. And this moment of recognition has something absolutely astonishing happened to him. His sin is atoned for. That is the thing that would make the least amount of sense to him in this moment. And it happens. He isn't destroyed before the Holy One, as he should be. Rather, the Holy One makes provision for his atonement. Why? Why would God do this? Why would He even care? He could have, in that moment, killed Isaiah, sent him straight to hell, and Isaiah would have agreed with the righteous action. We see here the altar in the temple, which was where countless animals were sacrificed by priests to remind the Israelites of the same truth that Isaiah sees absolutely clearly now, standing before a holy God, Sin demands death. Death is the just punishment for sin. But we are reminded in in Hebrews 10.4 that these dead animals that are sacrificed over and over on the altar, they're just pointing to something greater. The blood of goats and bulls could never take away sin. This altar in the temple is meant to point us to the ultimate sacrifice for sins that Jesus Christ made on the cross. That's what's represented here. Jesus Christ is the only person who has ever lived a life that would allow Him to stand before this throne unashamed. He perfectly honored, obeyed, and He revered God in every action and thought and moment in His life. And yet He goes to the cross. And on the cross, He takes upon Himself the fierce wrath of a holy God that is due to every person who has placed their trust in Him. Because He is fully man, He's able to take our place. And because He is fully God, He can pay an infinite punishment for a multitude. And God demonstrates that this sacrifice is the accepted atoning sacrifice that the altar is pointing to by raising Christ from the dead. And now, those whose eyes have been opened to their sinful standing before a holy God can repent of their sin, turn from it as they see it for what it truly is. Hating it because of who it is against And they put their trust in this sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And they can be saved. Placed in a position where the righteousness of Jesus Christ is given to us. And now we can stand before this this King 
blameless. And not merely blameless, but righteous. Not because of us in any way. Obviously, clearly. In light of this passage, who could ever boast about anything in yourself that would allow you to stand unashamed and righteous before this throne? No, it's a righteousness that comes from Christ that's given to us. The King now looks upon us. The Lord of hosts looks upon us and sees nothing but the perfect life and obedience of Jesus Christ. We have the full understanding what God has done for us in Christ. We have a much better understanding than Isaiah of what God did to atone for our sins. So how could our response in light of the holiness of God and His unbelievable provision for us ever be anything less than we see in Isaiah here? How could it be anything less? This is why it makes no sense that any Christian would ever be okay with having secret sin in their life. Why they would never be okay with just giving some, some thanks and praise to God once or twice a week and then living for themselves the rest of the time. How could the response of one who understands the depths of this salvation before an infinitely holy God ever respond in any way less than what Isaiah says here in verse 8 when we have so much better of an understanding of what our God has done to achieve this salvation? How can we not respond like this? And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Who shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. This is Isaiah's response before he has any idea what his mission is going to entail. What God is going to send him to do. He hears the voice of this holy God who has just atoned for his sin. Even though he would have been good and right and just to destroy him, he hears this king ask for someone to send. And of course, Isaiah enthusiastically, immediately volunteers, of course I'll do it, of course I will. Send me. And how could our response ever be anything less than that in light of this unbelievable salvation? A rebellious wretch before an infinitely holy God. Of course, whatever work you have, let me do it. What could this God ever ask you to do that would be too much? What could He ever ask you to go through that would be too far? Is there anything that He could ask you to sacrifice that would ever be over the line? In fact, for that matter, is it even possible for the term sacrifice to apply to anything that you give up on account of following Him? If you read a few verses down, you get to see what Isaiah's mission is. He's going to have the worst ministry that someone could imagine. God essentially tells him, you're going to go call people to repentance and they will never listen to you. I'm telling you in advance. And you're going to 
keep doing it until I eventually destroy them and destroy your land. None will repent. That sounds like an awful mission. But after reading these eight verses, it is completely unsurprising that he had no problem spending his entire life fulfilling this mission. And how could he possibly complain knowing who it was who asked him to do it? Whenever he was tempted to complain, right, all he would have to do is remind himself once again of God's holiness, the provision of this holy God on his life. So, Grace Church, that is exactly what we need. We need to keep the holiness of God front and center in our minds, in our hearts, throughout every moment, every decision we make in this life. As we think of this God and His throne, how could we possibly cave in and waste our lives worrying about all the stuff that CNN or Fox News tells us we need to worry about? As you read your Bible, as you pray, as you go through trials, as you speak with your neighbors, with your coworkers, your friends, with your parents, with your husbands and wives, with your children, as you speak with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, remember, remind yourself just who it is who sits on that high and exalted throne and what that holy God has done for sinful you through the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And then, walk through those situations and have those conversations in a way that makes sense for someone who really believes that God is holy, holy, holy. Oh Lord God, help us to remember as much as humanly possible how holy You are. Help that to be always at the front of our minds. Let that be what guides our thinking, our actions. Make us into a church that walks daily in the understanding of Your holiness. May it be evident to a watching world that we are those, that we are a church who fears God. And it is in the name of the precious atoning sacrifice that we have. Jesus Christ is in His name that we pray. And the only way we can pray. Amen.